You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. I'd like to talk about Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan and the enforcement of civil rights. And in context, what's effective? What works in terms of the enforcement of civil rights, in terms of the enforcement of equality rights? Uh, Marie Marcotte and I are working on editing a book of reports on just that question. And a number of you here are contributors to that for the International Academy of Comparative Law. And uh, if I could summarize that book in about 10 seconds, and Maria, I'll give you 10 later if you want to respond. But everywhere in the world, people are trying all kinds of different things. And we're prisoners of hope, but we also uh, everywhere are getting reports that, not surprisingly, it's very, very difficult to enforce equality rights. And nobody really knows what's most effective. And this, in part, this talk is a story about, it's an illustration of Disraeli's comment that people who love laws like people who love sausages shouldn't watch them being made. Um, uh, but it's also about the futility of thinking that we know what we're doing. Uh, but finally, it's also about being a prisoner of hope. It's about, uh, Dr. King talked about how the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward freedom. Um, and I think that this is also an illustration of that. So, uh, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, would almost certainly like to end any effective enforcement of US, and for that matter, anyone else's anti-discrimination laws. And uh, for those of us who are in the US uh, and committed to equality, it's our job uh, to make sure that he fails. The good news is that to some extent we've been here before uh, during the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Um, and we're still here. Ronald Reagan uh, got his start in politics. Um, and that slide's a little too early. Ronald, Ronald Reagan got his start in politics in the early 1960s. <clears throat> as an opponent of civil rights. Uh, and he campaigned against a California initiative uh, that uh, repealed the California Fair Housing Act that had been passed by the legislature, and then it was thrown out by the voters. Uh, and then he became a vocal supporter of Barry Goldwater, who was an opponent of every civil rights law that came to the US Senate during the time that Goldwater served in the Senate. Um, he ran for governor of California uh, against the student body at Berkeley uh, and the free speech movement, which was a movement of students wanting to support civil rights on campus. Uh, Reagan was an enemy of civil rights. And to make that clear in his campaign, he kicked off his 1980 presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the place where Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner had been murdered, the three civil rights workers murdered in Mississippi in the 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer, in a campaign in which he talked about his support for states' rights, which is the euphemism for um, uh, anti, for pro-segregation and anti-civil rights. And he ran his campaign on the wedge issue of the day, which was his opposition to affirmative action. Um, he was a, a strong, strong opponent of the enforcement of equality rights. 
Um, once elected, uh, he made sure that there were massive changes at the American Equality Body, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, at the Department of Justice in their Civil Rights Division, and at, in the Department of Labor at the uh, Office of Federal Contract Compliance. Um, in those agencies at the Department of Justice, he appointed a man named Bradford Reynolds as the head of the Civil Rights Division. Uh, Reynolds uh, had never done any civil rights work in his life, but he had been a vocal opponent of affirmative action. And as soon as he became the head of the Civil Rights Division, he engineered the US government changing sides in over 50 cases from support of affirmative action remedies, often in consent decrees, often in cases where the parties had agreed on a remedy, to opposition to those remedies, except in reverse discrimination cases, in cases where white men were complaining about discrimination and the US Justice Department supported them. It was so bad that in May of 1983, the NAACP asked Congress to disband the Civil Rights Division. That's really, uh, from an American perspective and given American history, that's quite remarkable. Uh, but that's how bad it was uh, under Reagan. Uh, at the EEOC, he appointed a man named Clarence Thomas as chair of the EEOC. That's someone you've probably heard of. <laughs> he went on to serve and continues to serve on the US Supreme Court. There were major budget cuts. There was a 50% reduction in the number of cases initiated by the EEOC. They abandoned their class action practice. Uh, they essentially abandoned their systemic discrimination practice. They began filing amicus briefs on behalf of employers, not employees, um, uh, except, again, in reverse discrimination cases. They filed, they filed a brief in the, in the Meritor case, which was the really important a first sexual harassment case to go before the court, urging a standard uh, before the court, which had it been adopted, would have, would have absolved Clarence Thomas of any liability for his actions uh, in the Anita Hill case. But of course, we didn't know about that at the time. Um, the percentage of no-cause findings, that is, cases where the EEOC said, no, there's no evidence of discrimination here, nearly doubled, well, the percentage of cases settling dropped by almost 50%. The EEOC was, under Reagan and uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, a disaster. At the Office of Federal Contract Compliance, they cut the budget 25%. They dropped the number of administrative complaints. These are complaints against large government contractors who weren't hiring women and minorities from 53 in 1980, that was the uh, last year that Jimmy Carter was president, to five in 1982. Uh, the back pay they recovered dropped by nearly 50%, and the disbarments of contractors for discrimination dropped to zero. But we're still here. Which is to say that the enforcement of civil rights continues, continued under Reagan at the private level, continues in the United States today, will continue under Donald Trump because of an independent judiciary, less independent today, uh, and less independent, it's likely to be less independent in years ahead. Our judiciary has become increasingly politicized, and uh, Trump, if he gets around to it, will appoint many 
very, very conservative judges. Although I say if he gets around to it, because although he has support in the Senate for anyone he appoints, he's made very few appointments, uh, even to the various agencies uh, that form the government. Um, there was a very active, very vocal civil rights bar uh, that raised its collective voices in protest to what he was doing. Uh, and there was a private right of action under Title VII, which is the main portion, the main employment discrimination prohibition of the Federal Civil Rights Act, which meant that people didn't have to go through an agency. They didn't have to go through an equality body. They could bring their own lawsuit. And to anyone who is saying, oh, well, that was a brilliant decision, either by the Congress or by civil rights advocates, it was, in fact, nothing of the sort. How did Title VII get its private right of action? It's, a, it's, it's really sort of an amazing story. And I've got, oh, I've got eight minutes left to tell it, which is perfect. So in 1963, following the demonstrations in Birmingham, President Kennedy realizes that he's got to introduce a civil rights act. And he does so on June 19th of 1963. Does anyone here know why June 19th is significant? Kennedy didn't, by the way. It's Juneteenth, right? It's the anniversary of the news of the Emancipation Proclamation reaching the slaves of Texas, okay? Um, any case, June 19th, um, the bill goes to the Congress, and the progressives in the US Congress, they want a strong equality body. They want a strong EEOC modeled on the National Labor Relations Board, which means that they want agency enforcement through agency adjudication. They don't want a private right of action. They don't want lawsuits. They want administrative actions heard by administrative law judges who work within the agency in the same way that the National Labor Relations Board, I was about to say works, worked. Because the National Labor Relations Board doesn't work at all anymore. Because it's become a completely captured and politicized agency. Moderates, and there were a lot of moderates in those days, wanted a somewhat weaker EEOC with enforcement in the courts through actions filed by the Department of Justice. They were saying people who have been victimized by discrimination, of course they should get legal representation, they should get help from the government, but they should have to go to court. Conservatives didn't want a Title VII at all, and the Dixiecrats didn't want a civil rights bill at all. So initially in Congress, the moderates are moving ahead. They're getting an EEOC with enforcement through the courts, and then the case, excuse me, the bill gets to the US Senate, uh, only because of the assassination of President Kennedy, uh, which one changes the pol political sense in the, in the US, and two, means that Lyndon Johnson is now president, and Lyndon Johnson was the greatest legislative strategist of the 20th century. And so Johnson gets the bill out of the House into the Senate, where it faces the longest filibuster in US history, um, and the only way that filibuster is going to be broken is with the support of moderate to conservative Republicans. 
who are willing to go along with the Civil Rights Bill as long as it doesn't have too much in the way of teeth. The key senator is the Senate Majority Leader, Everett Dirksen of Illinois, um, uh, a man who in his youth was a virulent racist, uh, but has become uh, more a person of his time, uh, which doesn't mean he's not a racist. On the other hand, it also doesn't mean that he's an opponent of civil rights uh, in the context of 1963-1964. And he meets with the Illinois Manufacturers Association, with the leaders of the business community in his state, and they propose a complete rewrite of Title VII with the idea that how can we protect business? And the answer, how can we protect business, is to make sure that there's no agency enforcing employment discrimination law and equality rights, either through an agency adjudication or through agency prosecution in the courts. Let's get it away from those democratic bureaucrats who are going to not be sensitive to the interests of business in the way that um, uh, in the way that the, we, the Illinois Manufacturers Association, uh, feel is necessary. So they suggest substituting a private right of action. They did so for one simple reason. They were convinced it wouldn't work. Their object was to sabotage Title VII by making it unenforceable. And everyone understood that at the time, so much so that Anthony Lewis, the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, journalist for the New York Times, describes this proposed substitution as a decision to make enforcement of Title VII voluntary instead of compulsory. Now, there have actually been a long history of proposals for voluntary um, compliance uh, instead of compulsory compliance. Uh, that go back to Robert Taft and, and uh, General then President Eisenhower and this whole wing, the sort of moderate to conservative wing of the Republican Party. It's not quite as, it, it doesn't sound, it didn't sound quite as absurd then as it might now. Um, but this was the, um, and it may not even sound quite as absurd now to some as it does to others. But this was at the heart of the changes that made it possible for Title VII to be passed, for the 64 Civil Rights Act to be passed, was the sabotage of the enforcement mechanism. No one foresaw the development of a private plaintiff's bar who would enforce civil rights laws through private lawsuits. No one imagined it. Uh, I shouldn't quite say that. Scholars have identified a few people who imagined it, but they were voiceless during that debate. So no one who was involved in the debate had any sense that if we create a private right of action, lawyers will become civil rights lawyers. Uh, we're at a point now where the second largest number of cases filed in federal courts are private civil rights enforcement actions. There is a huge plaintiff civil rights bar in the United States and as a result, when Ronald Reagan began his campaign to make the enforcement mechanisms within government ineffective, the alternative existed of private lawyers representing private clients bringing cases in federal court 
through this private right of action. That's why we still have civil rights today. They got no help from the DOJ, they got no help from the EEOC, but they continued to prosecute cases privately and to make good law in the process before an independent judiciary and with a, a civil society, uh, with an ABA that became stronger and stronger proponents of equality rights in part in reaction to what was happening in the White House and in Washington. So, the bill that passed thrilled the business community. If Dirksen and those he was working with knew what the consequence would be, they would, I'm sure, be spinning in their graves. Here we are, and what does it mean for now? Um, one, it seems to me that as, as um, as Mary Robinson told us that Bishop Desmond Tutu says, we've got to be prisoners of hope. We have to be hopeful. Uh, because we can't, we can't predict that, that Yogi Berra. Does Yogi Berra's name mean anything to you? Great American philosopher and baseball coach who once said, um, predictions are difficult to make, especially about the future. Um, and, and that's right. Um, it is very hard to predict. It's hard to predict with President Trump what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> but we've got to still be here. We've got to keep fighting. Churchill, Churchill said, never give up, never, ever, 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 ever. And I think I got the right number of evers there. And that means that we've got to commit to the rule of law. We've got to commit to working with civil society. We've got to commit to working with lawyers uh, on enforcing uh, these laws. And there's one more thing I want to say, and that is the role of love. I think that's the right way to end. <laughs> love matters. Love and respect toward each other, love and respect toward people who respecting is hard. Loving the work we do, doing the work we do with love. Dr. King talked about the transformative meaning of love. Uh, Nelson Mandela talked about the transformative meaning of love and Lenin, not, not that Lenin, <laughs> the other Lenin talked about the transformative meaning of love and they were right. Uh, we need, more than ever, we need to be, uh, we need to listen to each other, we need to be respectful of each other, and we need to love each other. So that's where I would end this.